Hi, and welcome to the study of God's Word from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. I don't know if you remember way back when, because some of you, I ask you about things, and you tell me things about years and years ago, and some of you can't even tell me what you had for breakfast this morning. But, as you know, last May, May, I think May 23rd, I started a sermon series in the book of Romans about the greatest book and about how to be a witness for Jesus Christ. And so this morning and this month, I want to continue on with that series in the book of Romans. So if you'll turn to Romans chapter 1, we're going to be focusing today on verses 8 through 17. So like I said this morning, I want to speak to you about the importance of developing a regular habit of personal evangelism. But I have a certain question that I want to ask you this morning. And that question is, who's your one? And we're going to explain what I mean by that as we go through here. So as you're in the book of Romans, we are focusing on that question, who's your one? So, Mr. and Mrs. Believer, who is the one person the Lord is putting in your life to share the message of the gospel. Who's your one? And again, that is the focus that will be this morning. I want to challenge you and uh, sort of empower you to be a life changer and a difference in someone's life. I am challenging you, I'm challenging you, to have a conversation focused squarely upon the gospel, a gospel conversation. Now, Romans 1 is our focus today. So Paul writes the introduction to one of the most outstanding letters you'll find anywhere. He follows the conventional format of how you would open up a letter of his day, except he makes one important change where most people would have said something to the effect of, I hope this letter finds you in good health, or I hope your business is doing extremely well. When Paul tells you, hello, how are you doing? He isn't talking about your wealth. He isn't talking about your health. Paul is simply talking about where you stand as far as your faith. Now, today's scripture, I want you to start at verse 8. But here Paul is longing to go to Rome. It says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you, always in my prayers asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented." in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation 
both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For it is in the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, before we actually get into the sermon portion of this, I want to point out a few items to you uh, as a background before we move on. Paul thanks God for their faith in verse 8. If you look at verse 8, a smile comes to his face when he thinks about their face. He was thrilled to hear about their faith from such a long distance, and he continually thanks God for their faith. Have you ever continually prayed for something? Let me define continually for you. It's not just maybe every evening before you go to bed or every morning when you wake up. When Paul talks about continually praying for something, this is constantly on his mind. He is constantly praying for this particular thing. He was praying for their faith because he knows, even within his own ministry, Paul knew that keeping faith was a difficult task. God gave him an almost impossible task, and he knew it, but he did it anyway. And that's what Paul is doing here. He's trying to encourage those to stay on top of their faith, to, to um, constantly remind them that you're going to go through a struggle. But know that God is with you. Know that God is with you through that struggle. So don't give up hope. You see, because if you are a believer, we need to give thanks to the Lord today. We need to give him thanks. Take special note that God is thanked through Jesus Christ in verse 8. If you want to get to I am eager and I am not ashamed, to be a difference maker and a life changer, you need to adopt these three statements. First, I am bound. I am under obligation both to Greek and to barbarian, both to the wise and to the foolish. The first attitude you need to develop is an attitude of obligation. Because, folks, we owe so much to God. We owe so much that we are constantly in debt. And I'll warn you now, we can never, ever repay that debt. But thanks be to God that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to pay that debt for us. First of all, he says, I am a debtor. I am a debtor. Move your eyes to the beginning of the sentence found in verse 14 where you read, I am under obligation. There are two ways that I can be in debt. The first way is if I borrow a thousand dollars from you. I would owe this money to you, wouldn't I? No? You can let me get away scot-free? I would owe you $1,000, correct? The second way I can be in debt to you is if I were given $1,000 by your friend in order to give it to you. 
I would owe you this money, wouldn't I? When we received Jesus Christ as our Savior, Jesus entrusted us with the gospel for our friends, for our family, the Greeks, the barbarians, the wise, the foolish. When we receive the gospel, we incur a debt. Obligation to him who died produces obligation to those from whom he died. Paul had not borrowed a penny from anyone in Rome, but he owed them something. Paul owed them something. And it wasn't because he was told he owed them something. He felt the sense in the depths of his heart because that's where Jesus Christ was residing. Just where Jesus Christ is residing now within us. We should feel that we are in debt. Because when we receive the gospel, it is not something for us to keep. Just for ourselves. We should feel obligated to give that message to others. And this is what Paul was saying here. If the gospel has come to me, I have no right to keep it to myself. The gospel is far too valuable to keep to myself. You see, God tells Christian believers to do something called evangelism. What is evangelism? Evangelism is the compassionate sharing of the good news of Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit to lost people with the intent of seeing them embraced Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. The simple truth is you cannot serve Jesus with a zipped lip, my friends. So how do we see ourselves? So let me ask you this question. How do you see yourself? Have you asked that? It's not an easy question to ask ourselves. How do we see ourselves? Well, I look in the mirror and I say, whoa. Okay, that's what I'm working with. All right, Lord. Let's see what we can do. Now, I know full well that my day can go one way or the other after I leave that point. And I think we know that too. How we start our day is how it's going to be for the rest of that day. We constantly say that when we wake up, we need to praise the Lord. We need to pray to the Lord. Because it kind of sets, sets the day right, don't it? But those who don't, you're not guaranteed of what's going to happen. God may have this wonderful opportunity for you to witness to somebody. But you're not prepared because you're not, you're not in the right frame of mind. Your heart is not in the right place where God has called it to be. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. It might as well say your name there, not just Paul. It should say David. It should say Chris. It should say Vicky. It should say Stanley. It should say all of our names right there. We are a servant of Christ Jesus. We are called to set apart for the, we are called to be set apart for the gospel of God. Circle the word servant in verse 1 and write out beside it slave. When Paul introduces himself where we would say our occupation, Paul calls himself a what? Apostle. He's an apostle. What is an apostle? a servant of God. Are we not servants of God? We may not have the title of apostle, 
But we are all servants of God. God has gave, gave us this occupation, every single one in this room. And it doesn't matter your age. Anywhere from 1 to 91. It doesn't matter. This is what we have been called to do. Paul sticks out his hand to shake yours and says, My name is Paul, and I am a slave of Christ Jesus. Do you know that early Christians called themselves slaves of God? It wasn't just Paul that was, he was a slave of God, but Moses is described as God's slave in Revelation 15. And Mary, the mother of Jesus, describes herself as a slave of God. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. You see, and then the New Testament ends and the period of the church fathers picks up. We witness even ordinary Christians calling themselves slaves to God. Friend, if you are not your own, do you realize this? You were bought with a price. We were bought with a price. Christians enjoy the bonds of limitation to our loving, heavenly Father. So we understand that being a servant is not a dirty word. This is what God bought us for. This is why he sent his son to die for us. There was a rhyme to this reason here. Because he knew how hard it was to be in the field. He knew he sent Paul on an impossible journey. He knew that your current situation is not one that you can handle on your own. And some might say, well, this is just a cruel test from God seeing if I'm going to fail. No. This is a test to show your love for God and what he has provided for you. This is an opportunity for you to demonstrate the gift that God has blessed you with. Now, granted, we all have different gifts. But when we come together as a body of Christ, those gifts work together to achieve an uncommon purpose. And that is to bring others into the fold, to bring others into the kingdom of God. Because some of us can't do that on our own. Some of us are more gifted in areas that we are not so gifted at. But when we come together, and when Paul says we get together, we can accomplish these things through God's, uh, through God's gifts. All right. I want you to go to verse 13 now. Jews during the New Testament time would often view the whole of humanity as two races, Jews and everyone else. Everyone else were called Gentiles, and that's exactly how Paul breaks down the population inside the capital city of Rome at the end of verse 13. In order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. You see, he sees two groups of people inside the immortal city of Rome, you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. Then Paul drills down inside the second group in the next verse by differentiating two groups in verse 14. Hang with me for a second. I'm just kind of breaking this down for you. Now look at the back half of verse 14 with me and where you'll read Greeks to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. All Greek-speaking people could understand 
from the foreigners were sounds of bar, bar, bar. Let me explain. So Persians, Egyptians, Spaniards, Germans, and literally everyone else would have been called a barbarian. He continues to describe everyone in the world when he says the wise and to the foolish at the end of verse 14. There, the cultured, the educated snob, and everyone else, the rest of us that work for a living, no matter if the people have differences in language, religion, culture, nationality, or even education, every single person is in view here. So Paul was saying he was in debt to everyone. Everybody. Not just for a select few. Paul had it upon his heart that he was in obligation to all. Suppose you become aware that the state of California has sentenced a man to be executed for a capital crime. Suppose our governor called you and said, I have decided to pardon this man. I need you to deliver this pardon to the prison and deliver it to the, uh, the prison warden because he has been pardoned. Easy task, right? All you have to do is deliver this. Suppose you took that pardon, put it in your pocket, and then remembered that your spouse told you to pick up a gallon of milk. Then you remembered that you had some bills that you had to pay, or you had an assignment that was due in class. And then you remembered also that your son or daughter's car wasn't working and he or she needed a ride back from the car mechanic. Life gets busy. We get busy. And then maybe a buddy calls you and says, you know what? I've got a couple of extra plane tickets. Why don't you and I go to Florida and play a few rounds of golf? Sound well, great, right, Dave? Well, yeah. Hey, appreciate it. Hey, that's wonderful. So you go and you, you get on your golf clothes and you go down to Florida and you finally come back to California after a few days. And immediately you find yourself a little behind in your work, so you're trying to catch up. And one day, you're having your coffee and you're reading the headlines on your phone or your iPad or wherever it is you get your news source now. And a news story jumps out at you. The state of California executes the very man the governor entrusted you to pardon. He was executed the night before, and you reach out to your dresser where you find the very pardon that you had in your pocket just balled up there on your desk. He had been pardoned. The man was pardoned, but you never delivered the message. How would you feel? How would you feel when the dirt was piled on top of that man's grave? And how would you feel at the funeral of your sister, your mother, your neighbor, and your co-worker when they never had been told of God's pardon for them? I am under obligation both to Greek and barbarian, both to the wise and to the foolish. The hymn that we have sung for 
half a century. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Obligation to the one who died is an obligation to those from whom he died. If the gospel has come to me, I have no right to keep it to myself. The gospel is too valuable to keep to myself. So who's your one? Who's the one person you're supposed to be sharing the gospel with? Notice I didn't say tens, twenties, thirties, hundred. I'm talking about one individual. Who's your one? Romans 1.15, So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. In other words, to be an effective Christian, you not only need to develop an attitude of obligation, but also you need to develop an attitude of ambition. Light a fire under yourself. This should be exciting for us. This... It's an obligation, but it's something that we should want to do. If you have that fire burning inside you, how can you just sit there and keep it to yourself? That's not what we've been called to do. That's not why God gives you those feelings inside your heart. He does that to urge us along. So then when we look at those impossible tasks... We can approach it like Paul did. I'm going to do it anyways because it's something that I want to do because I owe God all that I have. I owe him all. We have to be eager to do these things. Look closely at the word eager because behind this word stands the Greek word that means you are willing, even passionate. We need to get more passionate about what we do. Too often we just go through the motions. Too often we don't approach things with the attitude like Paul did. The word pictures someone whose heart is burning with tremendous zeal. Um, it's often described... Let me see if I can describe this for you. When we call a Christian with a burning desire to reach those who are lost and to bring those back into the fold, we kind of call this holy heartburn. Okay? Because this person is on fire. But isn't that a great picture to figure out? Those who have had heartburn know that it's very unpleasant. And you got to do something about it, don't you? before it come, becomes worse. That's what they're talking about here. It should, the desire in your heart should push you because you want to take care of what's going on. If you have a fire within your heart to preach to others, to teach others, to reach the lost, then do it. And then notice the results. Oh, your heart feels good. That's what God wants for us. He wants us to have that feeling. He wanted Paul to have that feeling. And Paul did get that. He did get that. Yes, Paul suffered tremendously. 
But you know what? He suffered. And I would be as bold to say that he enjoyed it. Because he was doing something that he knew God wanted him to do. And God called him to do. And he had that burning desire. It, see, you've got to understand that when we talk about this holy heartburn, it kind of pictures a person set to go with a hair trigger for a passion for the task ahead. And that's the way we need to approach things. Paul says, I am eager. Paul says that he's eager. Are you eager? Are you ready to go out? Are you ready to evangelize? And some of you might say, well, that's not really my gift, Pastor. Have you tried? Have you allowed God to fill in the blanks where you know it is blank? You don't know until you try. Now, if I am in debt to all people, how do I pay my debt to all people? Do you know the word behind the English translation, preach the gospel? In verse 15, our word is evangelism. The words preach the gospel in verse 15 hides the true personal nature of what needs to happen here. You need to be a preacher and you need a pulpit to share the news. I don't mean a physical pulpit. You just need an opportunity to be in front of that person and share the gospel. It's as simple as that. You don't need a big fancy invitation. God's going to lead you where he needs you to and he's going to provide those opportunities. You see, we tend to disregard our lack of evangelism as a real problem. We miss those opportunities to share Christ and then we justify this with our disobedience. We have thoughts like, well, someone else can share, you know, they can share with this person. If I don't get to it, I know somebody else will. Or maybe the timing isn't right. Now's not a good time to do what I think needs to be done and what God is calling upon me to do. We call that a failure to launch. Now, I read this week where nearly half of all believers will not invite another believer to church, but we often invite only other believers. A believer will invite another believer to church, but get this, only 2% of believers will invite an unchurched or unsaved person. Is it any wonder, as Christians, we hear those numbers of, oh, there's 65 million that are unsaved in the United States. And we gasp at that number, and we wonder, how is that even possible? It's because we're not inviting them to church. We're saying things like, oh, it's not the right timing. Or we're saying, oh, someone else will get to it. Well, I will tell you now. They're not getting to it. Take it upon yourself to help that cause. So I asked, how do we pay that debt? Well, here it is. Here's how we pay that debt. We just personally share the message of the gospel. Tell them your story. How did you come to know Christ? 
What impact does he have on your life? We need to make that personal connection. God will fill in the blanks, I promise you. God's not going to let something fail that needs to succeed. And like I've said before, it's those seeds. You may not see a result right away. It may be years down the road. It may be after you're gone. Paul knew this was going to be a disaster. God told him, everything that you say, Paul, is going to fall on deaf ears. Woohoo, sign me up. That's how I probably would have said it. But Paul had that zeal. He had that holy heartburn burning deep with sight inside of him. And he took the challenge. We need to start taking those challenges. I'm going to tell you another story. Uh, it was some time ago that the man they called the Subway Superman. Have you heard of this man? Some years back. Anyways, he was called the Subway Superman, and he jumped into action. His name was Wesley Autry, and he was a 51-year-old Harlem construction worker on his way home with his two little girls. He was waiting for his train on the 137th Street platform when a stranger began to have a seizure. As the stranger began to flail, he fell onto the tracks immediately in front of the number one subway oncoming train. Wesley was quoted later. He said, it came in fast, whizzing by. The man fell into the tracks backward, right into the gutter with his arms and legs still shaking. Wesley knew he had to jump on the tracks to save the man. With the train horn sounding and people yelling, Autry's only option was to pull the man's shaking limbs inside the track and squeeze both of them into the gutter in the middle. When the train finally stopped above him, it had passed right over the two men with only a half-inch clearance. The train grazed the Navy veteran. Uh, he had like a blue-knit hat, and it stopped over him. And of course, his heart was pounding, right? The first thing the father did was to yell from under the train in order to let his girls know he was safe. The power was cut off, and 40 minutes later, he was finally rescued. He eventually dropped the girls off at the house, and then, just like the man he was, he just went to work. He just went to work. That blue hat had a grease stain left over from the ordeal. Now, New York City went wild about this story. The then mayor, Michael Bloomberg, hugged him. Night show host David Letterman featured him. And even eventual President Donald Trump hailed him. Like I said this morning, we need to adopt those three attitudes. We need to know the three I am statements here that we're talking about. I am under obligation. I am eager to do what God has called me to do. And finally this morning, we need to know that we are not, and I repeat, we are not ashamed. 
I am not ashamed. Right. Why all this fanfare? Well, everyone instinctively knows why. It was because the man's life was saved. The subway superman was eager to save. Are you? Are you eager to save? Few things cause so much joy than to share the good news of God's love through Jesus Christ. Who's your one? Who's your one? To be an effective Christian, you not only need to develop an attitude of obligation and an attitude of ambition, but we have to also adopt an attitude of conviction. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Would to God that I could say, you could say with the Apostle Paul, I am bound, I am eager, I am not ashamed. Friend, to be a highly effective Christian, you need a dose of debt, a sprinkling of enthusiasm, and a dash of daring. We need to be bold. We need to be bold in our Christianity. Poem says, I'm, Must I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease while others bled to win the prize and sail through bloody seas? Now, I've talked about these things, and a lot of these things are mentioned within the spiritual gifts of God. You have your style. I have my style. But we have to overcome our fear of evangelism because truth be told, all of us have felt a sense of shame about the gospel at one time or another. All of us have experienced the shame that silences us. Do you know how to get past this shame? Know that the message of the gospel is the message that saves. I am bound. I am eager. I am not ashamed. All three of these are powerful statements. Each genuine believer must make. We must do this. There's a sense of obligation because I have been entrusted with the good news. There's a sense of conviction because I know the gospel has saved me. And I know that it could save others. So here is our boldness. Here is our courage. It's found in this vital truth, the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel has inherent power in it to change lives. Now, I love how Paul comes full circle from verse 13 to verse 16. Every single person and every single kind of person he felt obligated to is every single person and every single kind of person who can be saved when they believe. Have you arrived at that place where you can say, I am not ashamed of the gospel? Here. Have you come to that place where you can say, I am not ashamed of the gospel at your business? Have you come to the place where you can say, I am not ashamed of the gospel in your home, 
Can you say, I am not ashamed of the gospel at your school? Can you say, I am not ashamed of the gospel when you're with your friends? Can you say, I am not ashamed when the opportunity arises when it's really easy to say yes? Effective Christians arrive at this I am not ashamed stage in their journey. It will come. The question is, will you be prepared? And I leave you with this again. God's not asking you to save the world. But God is asking the same question that I'm asking you this morning. Who's your one? Who is your one? David is going to come and lead us in a song before we leave today. But I want you to seriously consider that question. And if you don't know the answer to that question, go to God in prayer. If you don't even know what that means, find somebody who does. And if you're sitting here this morning and you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, I pray that today is the day that you come to know Christ. And we've got plenty of people here who will help facilitate that. We've got deacons. We've got pastors. Dave is here. We're all here for you. It doesn't matter where you come from, what you've done, where you've been. God doesn't care about that. He wants to get to know you. He wants you to get to know Him. So that when these opportunities come, that person can someday say, I am not ashamed of the gospel. David, lead us, please. And may we boldly proclaim, we who believe in Christ, I'll tell the world that I'm a Christian, I'm not ashamed, His name to bear. I'll tell the world that I'm a Christian, I'll take Him with me. saved me and how he gave me a life brand new and I know that if you trust that all he gave me he'll give to you I'll tell the world that he's my savior no other one could love me so my life my all is his forever and where he leads me time here this morning 
And as the song says, Lord, lead us where we go. Be with us, guide us, provide those opportunities that we can emphatically say we are not ashamed of the gospel. Thank you for our time together. Bless us where we go. And it's in your holy, precious name we pray. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Have a great day in the Lord. The Bible says, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, we invite you to call on him now and through a simple prayer of faith, give your life to him. If you're not attending a church that honors the Bible as the Word of God, we encourage you to locate and begin attending such a church in the area where you live. The message you have just heard was preached from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. For more information on the ministry of First Baptist Church, Winton, please visit our website at wintonchurch.org.